Good morning. Today's passage is Philippians chapter 3, the whole chapter. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for this uh, passage that we're going to learn more about today. We pray that uh, the ears of our hearts would be open to hear the things that you have to say through your word here. We pray that you would grant Phil uh, great clarity in communicating uh, these things to us, Lord, that he would be speaking your words and not his own. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to do this each Sunday. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Nathan. Good to see you all again. This is message five of six in the book of Philippians. And we are going to be in chapter 3 today, as you just heard. Uh, I want to start by reviewing, before I put it up there on the screen, maybe you can remember the catchphrases. Again, I hope they're helpful to you. There are three of them. And I'm not going to make you say them with me today, but next week I might call someone and ask them to do it. Maybe. Maybe one of the old youth guys. But if you can think about it with me, what are they? 
joy from progress of the gospel. The unity that comes from what? Humility. And then the final thing which we're going to tackle today and in chapter 4, and really the theme throughout, if you will, Christ above all. And so thinking about those things, we want to also remember what the book is about. This is one of my personal hopes and prayers for you as you read through the book of Philippians and as you sit here listening to me preach it. That if someone were to come to you at work or in your home, you would have some framework to tell them about the book of Philippians. A little bit like our discipleship group that we do for the youth. A lot of times we make people come up with phrases for the chapters. And so my hope is that when you leave the series and I'm gone and even six months from now, you'd be able to remember either the cat's phrases or hopefully some of this. What is the book of Philippians about? And this is what I'm saying it is about. I'll do this one more time. I've done it every time. Maybe you'll get sick of it, maybe not, but this is what it is. How can the church at Philippi stand strong? It includes the elders and deacons in that in his address in chapter one. How can they endure, continue to live the Christian life strong, persevering? I've set forth so far two, and today will be the third way that I think the book of Philippians answers that question for us. Number one, if they rejoice in the advance of the gospel. Number two, if they're humble, which produces unity. They'll fall if they're proud. They'll fall if they're not joyful about the right things. And then today, we're going to talk about the relationship with Christ. They'll stand strong if they know Christ personally and deeply and experience, as you read, his power in their lives. And that's what we're going to do today. But I want to stop for a second and actually talk about the title I've given my sermon, Religious Affections. That's a weird way to say something that may be better characterized this way, but the reason I put it that way is that Jonathan Edwards' famous book, Religious Affections, is like the standard on this subject. And it's really about matters of the heart. And it's at the heart of the matter to turn the phrase in chapter 3. What do I mean by that? You can see, I think, more clearly in Philippians 3, Paul's heart for the Philippian church and for Jesus Christ than anywhere else in the book of Philippians and maybe in the entire scripture. You see here how much he loves them and loves Jesus. He's got this real desire to protect them from spiritual shipwreck. And so he uses angry words about his opponents to convey that something is wrong in their lives and what they're preaching. He calls them dogs. We're going to talk about that later. So we've got anger. We've got the joy that overflows when he thinks about his salvation and what's coming for him and all who trust Christ. And at the very end, uh, I think it's 18, you see he says tears. I think that's he's crying for those who have abandoned the only hope they have, like we talked about this morning. If you reject Jesus, there's nothing left for you. And he's sorrowful about that. He's, He's not angry at those who have abandoned the faith. He's sad for them. And the tone of Philippians really comes to a head here in chapter 3, and he shows, if you will, his religious affections. I wanted to make sure that we're all on that page before we start, because I think the emotions sometimes, especially in the evangelical church, get left out, like they're not a part of the doctrine. 
And we are going to talk about theology, but those two must, our life and our doctrine must align. And the emotions, the religious affections are at the heart of the matter here in Philippians chapter 3. All right. Now, I don't want you to miss a couple of other things, and I want to give you a little parable here that I hope will align our hearts in the right way. A customs officer at the Canadian border observes a truck pulling up. Suspicious, he orders the driver out and searches the vehicle. He pulls off the panels, the bumpers, the wheel covers, looks under the seat, looks in everywhere, pulls off the dashboard, can't find anything. He's suspicious, and he knows this guy is smuggling something. Something is going over the border illegally, but he can't find anything, and so he waves the driver on. He says, go ahead and go through. Well, the, the very next week, the same driver comes in a truck, and this guy is like, man, you know what? We got to try something else. So he, he gets an x-ray. I don't know if they have it. It's just a parable. He gets out his sonar and is like seeing if waves come back, right? He gets out, whatever. He does a full body search and nothing. And the same guy keeps coming back to the border week after week and nothing is ever found. And finally, after many years, this customs officer is ready to retire. And he sees the guy coming up to the border. He's like, all right, well, here's my chance. So he promises him, hey, I can't do anything to you. I'm retiring. I promise you I will not be able to harm you. What are you smuggling across the border? And the guy smiles at him and says, trucks. <laughs> trucks. Sometimes the most obvious thing is the thing we miss. It was right in front of him, right? I think there are two things I don't want you to miss in chapter 3. For our spiritual lives. Number one, the overarching thing that the reality is to live the Christian life well, you must have a good relationship with Jesus Christ. And you must have one, period. There's no other way. If that's missing in your life, all the other things are secondary. If you don't know him, we're going to talk about how to do that and what that means here. The re forget the rest. Come to him in faith today. And then the second thing that I really don't want you to miss is this, another short story here. When we were going out to share the gospel uh, and we were learning the three circles method, I know that some of y'all have been out. I know Daniel and many of us have been out sharing Christ. I know Nathan is gone. Um, and we were studying that and actually just trying to share the gospel. You know, when you're under pressure, it's hard to like remember things that you actually really know, Right. And I read some books, and even in, just in experience with other people, there's one part of the gospel that is missed more than any other part. I'm not going to tell you right now, but think in your own minds. If you're out sharing the gospel, what would you say? What would you be sure to include that if you told that person they would trust Christ and have assurance of their faith right then? There's one thing that most people miss. And in the book I read, they said that even a lot of people who stand and do what I do on the spot miss this thing the most. I want you to think about that for a second. Before we dive in now to the book of Philippians in chapter 3, and it's really about knowing Christ. 3.8 says that I count everything, Paul is saying, indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. He says, this one thing I do in 3.13, his life is unified in purpose to know the Lord Jesus. 
And I think there are two things that I want to talk about regarding that. First is the hindrances to knowing Jesus Christ. What would stop you in your life from knowing, having a real deep relationship with Jesus? I think there are two things in Philippians 3 that would stop anyone from knowing Christ well. And the first one is in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3. And that is relying on the flesh. He says it three times to make it clear that we get it. If we rely on our flesh to have a relationship with God, we will not have that. I want to read a couple of verses again in Philippians 3. I'm going to read 2 through 4 and verse 7. So you can turn there with me. It says this. I'm reading ESV. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And really, the heart of this approach to knowing God, knowing His Son, Jesus Christ, is what? It's the opposite of chapter 2. It's pride. And so his letter turns from chapter 2 in humility to an approach to God that's the opposite, a prideful approach, thinking that you and your own works can gain God's favor. One of the guys this week pointed out to me that it's just interesting how God prepared Paul, of all people, to be the one to speak against Judaism. And so in your minds, you're probably thinking, okay, why is Paul uniquely qualified? Well, he wasn't on the bench in the game of legalism or Judaism. He was at the top. He was hitting 500 in the majors. He knew his stuff. You can read the history there in chapter 3 or in other places in Scripture. He gives accounts of his life. He was the all-star. And he met the risen Jesus Christ, and it changed him. And so I think he's uniquely qualified. You know, like experts speak on subjects. He's the expert on this approach to knowing God, and he tell me and you and the Philippians, you can't do it. This approach will not work. What's wrong with legalism? Well, let me ask another question. If you were to pervert the gospel, what's the best way you can think of doing that? What did Satan do in the garden? What are these false teachers doing? Number one, they get people to doubt God's words. To doubt that God will do what he says. To doubt that he's trustworthy. And number two, in place of God, yourself. You trust yourself. That is the best way to pervert the gospel, and that is what legalism does. A big part of legalism is mistrust, not trusting other people or God in this case. Here's an example, I think, that will help us understand that. Why do we, as Americans particularly, have so many laws? Why are we a litigious society? Why do we sue other people so much? We don't trust each other. Our society has increasingly gone to a place where we don't trust people's words. So we have to put them under contract. Here's a couple of interesting 
laws that are on the books. I was thinking today as Moses was talking to my dad. In Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, it's illegal to whisper in church. <laughs> I don't think it's enforceable, but it's actually, you can go look. It's actually illegal. Why? Because they don't trust other people to, to honor each other in church. Interesting. That was probably made many years ago, still on the books. Here's another one. In Tennessee, since 2011, it's actually been illegal to share your Netflix password. I wonder how many people have broken that law. <laughs> Why? Because you can't trust people to do what the terms of service say. So they had to make another law. Here's another one. The Guinness Book of World Records says that the largest legal document was an insurance policy <laughs> measuring 29 and a half feet by 19 and a half feet. So I did some math because they didn't say the size of that. Basically 900 pages. <laughs> they had to hire someone to arbitrate that contract. It was an insurance policy from an old banker. Why? Why? Because we want to put other people on contracts so we're sure they'll keep their word. And at the heart of legalism, that's what it is. We want to put God under contract to fulfill his word. Though he has promised to do so, we want one extra measure. One surety in our flesh to make sure God does what we want for us. And that is at the heart of what these people, these mutilators of the flesh, were saying to the Philippians. You know what? All that faith stuff in Jesus is okay. But to be really Christian, to be really sure, you have to do a few small things in your life to get God's favor. One of them for them was circumcision. But I'm, there were others. I wonder what those things are in our lives. And so the opposite of that is exactly where Paul, Paul is going in a minute. It's trust. It's faith. Believing what God says. Not putting him under contract. We can never actually do that. God keeps his promises, not the things we do to make him serve us. Paul says instead, no, trust God no matter what he does. And it'll be good for you and good for the gospel. Think about chapter one. You know, Paul is like the pinnacle of the great evangelist, and he's in jail. <laughs> is that, what? Come on, God. But you know, Paul says, I trust God. This is where I should be. This is what's good for his glory and not my own. He says to us, trust God. You know, I got to say, and I've been here, that if we live in this way, in other words, trying to put God under contract by the works we do to make sure that he blesses us, it will just lead to disappointment in our lives. Think about raising kids. There are no promises to us as believers about where our kids will be. We're just asked to be faithful. If we try to do all the right methods, all, teach all the right things, keep them from all the wrong things, and they walk away, if we have a wrong view of God, we're going to end up depressed, discouraged, and doubting God even more than we did before and wondering where he is in our lives. If you live like this, when things fall apart around you, God forbid one of your family members dies, a baby dies, or you lose your job, you're going to spiral into more doubt because your efforts have not produced what you want to get from God. And that is the danger of this approach to God, especially for believers, if I can say that. And that's the first hindrance, reliance on the flesh. 
And number two, it's kind of like a specific thing he says. He points out one of the problems with the church. The general thing, though, I think is his more important point here. Anything that we value, that I value more than Jesus Christ, is a hindrance to knowing him. In our lives, whatever is worth more in our hearts, whatever has taken the throne of our hearts instead of Christ will hinder us from knowing him. Read with me 8 and then a short portion of 9. I think the sentence finishes there. It says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Two important textual notes here. I don't know what your Bible says, uh, what the translation is for rubbish. This is ESV. That's not, that's a very PC way of saying this. You've probably heard this before. But it's important, I think, that we get in the right mindset to highly value Christ and infinitely second value everything else. This word is human excrement. And there's a couple of articles that I can give you in if you want to email me, one by a guy named Dan Wallace, that he, he goes through and he tracks the evolution of this word, and he's pretty certain. He says, this is an offensive word. It is really the equivalent of a couple of four-letter English words that we might think of when we think of that, that I cannot say or shouldn't say up here. That's what it means. And I just got to say, it takes a lot of humility for us to view the things we do and have in that light compared to what Jesus is and has done for us. It takes a lot of humility to say that my degree isn't worth anything compared to knowing Christ. And if it gets in the way, I should remove it. It takes a lot of humility to say that my house is not worth anything compared to knowing Christ. And if that's a problem, I should remove it. It takes a lot of humility to say that how smart I am is not worth anything compared to knowing Christ. My health my family's health. Think about Epaphroditus. He valued knowing Christ and in humility serving others worth a 1,300-mile walk. He, were, he, he gave up his health for the gospel. My comfort and entertainment are less valuable than knowing Jesus Christ. How many people come to youth group? How well our church does? how my retirement is faring, how my job is going, whatever you want to say, is infinitely second in Paul's world and thus the real world, God's world, compared to knowing Jesus Christ. And that's what he's presenting. Whatever gets in the way of knowing him, that thing needs to go comparatively. Not that those aren't good or can't be good, but it's second, infinitely so in Paul's world, in our world, Christ above all. And that's why I chose that phrase, Christ above all. The second note I want to make here is when he says gain Christ, there, what does that mean to actually gain Jesus Christ, to, to get him? Well, I said earlier, there's one thing people forget when they're presenting the gospel. And I think that's the heart of what he's talking about in Philippians 3. And really where he goes with the rest of the chapter in verses 12 and following, and that is the resurrection. How do we actually get Jesus Christ? Well, we get his spirit by faith now, but faith is not yet sight. And the Bible clearly talks about that. I think Paul has in view here 
a resurrection. Getting to be with and touch and walk with the risen Savior. I think that's what he's saying. He says, I get to gain Christ. I think supporting that is go, if you go back to 121, he says, you know what? To live is Christ. Okay, I get that. To live is to trust Christ, to have his power in my life. He says that here. But what does he say? To die is gain. To die is gain. How can death be gain for a Christian? It's the resurrection. It's to be in a body with Jesus Christ who is in a body, and that's what it means to gain Jesus Christ. This is so important to the Christian faith, and most people, the most people that miss a part of the gospel, thinking about 1 Corinthians 15, miss the resurrection. This has become more important to me over the years. I'm 41. (laughs) Some of y'all here, I was talking to a brother. It's near for him. It's nearer for some of us than we realize to be with Jesus Christ. This is the heart of our faith. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. This is where we go as believers. Otherwise, we're to be pitied. We're fools if the resurrection isn't real, if that's not where we're hoping to land with Jesus in resurrected bodies forever. And I think thinking about that, that's what makes Jesus so worthwhile. His supreme worth to us as believers. And if we miss that, either we don't really believe it or we don't hope in it, we're going to end up where these legalists were. And so I love this quote from Silva. Um, I've I talked about him a little bit before in his commentary on this book. It's really good. This is what he says about kind of the resurrection and believing that and knowing the truth of it. He says, the enemies of the cross, verse 18 and speaking about verse 1, the enemies of the cross pose a practical threat to a weakened Christian community that is in danger of becoming schismatic. Okay, what does that mean? Look, they are, there's some infighting. There's some discouragement because of what happened to Paul. And there's people fighting in the church over what they should really be doing. Chapter 4 talks about those people by name. It says, you know what? When you're like that, if you don't know the truth, you're going to break. And that's what he says here. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you're going to break. Paul's prescription, quoting him, is doctrine. To understand the content and character of your faith, he says, and you will stop being intimidated by the barking of the dogs. If you know Jesus Christ and the truth about the resurrection and the gospel, people that come try to tell you those things, you'll just dismiss them. You'll say, no, that's not true. My hope is in the resurrection. I know what's true for me and my life and in reality overall. And so if we rely on the flesh, we won't know God. We won't know his son, Jesus Christ. If we value anything more than him and his resurrection, We won't know him. But what does it mean to know Jesus Christ? What does it mean to know? Specifically that word, knowing. I think it means intimacy. Knowing means having an intimate relationship with someone in the Bible or something. (laughs) When the Bible talks about it, it's not just math. Like two plus two 
or difficult math like calculus or whatever math you might have. It's not watching a YouTube video about how to fix your plumbing 30 times and never having actually done it. (laughs) It's not like knowing all the specs of a rocket or knowing how to code but having never done coding. It's not being even being near God, like sitting near him like you would at a basketball game. You can't say, I know LeBron, by sitting even front row or shaking his hand at a basketball game, right? Knowing is intimate knowledge, like a marriage, that kind of intimacy. So God in Genesis 3, 5 warns that if Adam and Eve disobeyed him, they would what? They would know evil. Interesting. They would have an intimate relationship with evil. What a sad thing that they would experience evil. When Adam and Eve had kids the first time, the Bible says that Adam knew his wife, that same word here, that kind of intimacy in a marriage. Deuteronomy 34.10 says, Moses was a special prophet. Why? He knew the Lord. God spoke with him face to face. He had that kind of intimacy. Psalm 139 is another great one. And there it talks about how well God knows us. He, he knows us so well that no thought and no action we've ever done or will do escapes his knowledge. That is a comforting thing. That is the kind of intimacy that this is talking about. And this is what Jesus said in John 17, 3. He said, eternal life is to know me. This is the quote. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And that is what Paul is picking up here. He's saying, you know what? You have to know Christ. You have to have what? An intimate, personal relationship with him. You don't have to sit near him. You have to know about him like two plus two. Yeah, I know in history he died for my sin. No, you have to appropriate that to your heart. That's true for me. I want that for me. You know, I talked about some hindrances to knowing God. Let me say there are a couple things that are not hindrances your circumstances, or what happened to you in life. Think about Paul. Is his jail a hindrance to knowing Christ? Absolutely not. Were the death of his friends along the road to presenting Jesus Christ in town after town, the stonings, was that a hindrance to knowing God? No, it was not. And neither are difficult circumstances in your lives In fact, there's no circumstance in your life that prevents you from knowing Christ. There's no obstacle that will get in the way. Other things that have been done to you or things that you've done to others, if we repent and trust Christ, those circumstances are not preventing us from knowing Jesus Christ. Let me give you a story of a guy that is just so humbling and just amazing. George Lyle his name. He lived from 1750 to 1828. He was the first African-American to be ordained and the first Baptist to go as a missionary to any other land. He went to Jamaica. So if you're tracking, it's not William Carey. (laughs) Born a slave in Virginia, Lyle was taken to Georgia, where he was saved in 1773. He soon became concerned about the spiritual condition of his fellow slaves and began preaching to them. In 1775, he was ordained as a missionary to work among the black population in the Savannah area. He was set free in 1778. 
but obtained a loan and accepted the status of indentured servanthood to pay the passage for himself, his wife, and his family to go preach the gospel in a ship going to Jamaica. He landed there in January 1783, and he repaid the debt and secured permission to preach to the slaves on the island. Therefore, by the time that William Carey, often mistakenly perceived as a first Baptist missionary, sailed for India in 1793, Lyle had worked as a missionary for a decade. Without any support from any other person, he supported himself and his family. Apparently, he never received or accepted any kind of money for his ministry, most of which was directed to the slaves. He preached, baptized hundreds, and organized them into congregations governed by a church covenant he adapted to the Jamaican context. And by 1814, his efforts had produced either directly or indirectly 8,000 believers in Jamaica. At times, he was harassed by white colonists and by government authorities for agitating slaves and was imprisoned once for more than three years. But he died in Jamaica, a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. Man, if there was anyone who had hindrances to knowing Christ and to doing what was called to do in his life, it was, it was, he's one of them. He was great, many hindrances to his life and to knowing Christ, but he persevered. There are no obstacles in your life to knowing God. Come to him by faith. Trust him. And that's where we go next. We know Jesus Christ by faith. 3.9, read it with me. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He's reiterating it. It's so important. He just says the same thing basically twice in a row. And it's to both unbeliever and believer. Our righteousness, being right in God's eyes, is by faith. We begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, not by things we do, not by sacrificing or doing good things. We talked about this this morning, actually, in worship, but by trusting him. And here's a word that we usually attach to that, justification, right? We are justified or declared right in God's eyes by faith alone. Some of you might go there, Romans 5, declared right. You know what Romans 2 says that we get if we do our own works? We're storing up wrath. (laughs) It's funny, a giant pile of wrath is accumulating if you're trying to work your way to God that will all fall on you instead of Jesus if you don't trust him for salvation and for forgiveness of sins. No amount of work you can do will ever commend you to God. Only trust in Christ. And we are declared right when we believe that Jesus did the work for us. The opposite of what those people trying to mess up the Philippian church are doing. They're saying, depend on yourself. Paul is saying, depend on Christ. Couldn't be more opposite. We know Jesus Christ also by the experience of our faith. And this is verse 10. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Certainly Paul did that. He experienced the sufferings, the difficulties. What Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Paul did that. And we call this, from Romans 7 and other places, sanctification. The process of being made like Jesus Christ. 
You know, Jesus, it's said of Jesus himself that through the things he suffered, he learned obedience. For us, it's the same thing. There's a process. And I think if you look at the text, a minor point, but I think that maybe one of the things that these Judaizers, these mutilators, as Paul calls them, are trying to do, they're trying to say, you know what? I'm perfect. I don't sin anymore. Wrong. He says that is not the reality of the Christian life. There is no perfection this side of the kingdom for us. We will fall. We'll have to do John 1, 1 John 1, countless times in our lives, won't we? But we experience the power, the resurrection power, it says, and the reality of our faith, and that is how we know Jesus Christ. I've said it before, but you know what? If you just think and don't act on sharing the faith, it is difficult to really understand what suffering is. The fear comes, right? When you are, when you are called to share with a neighbor and you think about that, there's a temptation to fear and shrink back and, and you don't want that suffering. You don't want that rejection. That's what he's talking about. We experience the power of the resurrected life. We know Jesus Christ better as we walk with him. Sanctification. We have justification, we have sanctification, we also know Jesus Christ, and this is where he's driving, I think, in the resurrection. I'm going to read it to you here in verse 11. I'm also going to jump to 20 and 21 because I think they form a bookends in one sense. He's trying to say the same thing from 11 all the way down to 21 in different ways. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead, 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And this is is called glorification, to use a theological term. It's Romans 8, right? Whom he justified, he also glorified. And we believe that he will do this, but one day our faith will be sight. And like I was saying earlier, this is the core of the hope of a believer. Look, all the other stuff goes away if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Not that each one of the facts of the the truth of redemption and salvation is more important than the others, but Paul seems to make a big deal about this one right here. He says, look, if you don't hope in the resurrection, you're going to fall. And that is how we know, ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I say best? And again, if you look at verse 12, he's not saying that he's there already. He doesn't have a glorified body, maybe like some people were claiming. I can't sin, I'm perfect. He says, no, we're not there yet, but it's coming. And I'm hoping in that. I I love this illustration of this reality that we will raise from the dead to be with life. You know, It said, and I don't even remember where I read this, but we all start chained to Adam. We have a, if you can imagine, a physical chain around your arm to Adam, the man of the flesh who sinned and incurred judgment. But when we trust Christ, that chain is transferred from Adam to Jesus Christ. And the key is gone. And and we cannot do anything to let go of Jesus Christ because he is holding us. The chain stays and will never go. So if you die, like that chain might be dragging you down, he pulls you right up out of the grave. And you're raised to new life with him. 
And that's what it means that Jesus Christ has taken hold of you. That's what it means, hold fast. You remember, hold fast. He's got a hold of you and he's never letting go. What God requires, endurance, he provides. The chain is on Christ and it will never leave for those who know him by faith. Even death, Romans 8, cannot separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. And for those who are approaching death, that's a great comfort. And I might be too. (laughs) I don't know if I drive home and I'll die on the way. But this is where our hope is at in the resurrection, whether you're five or 95. That is what Paul says here. I want you to know in verse 19, the difference in end for those who are apart from Christ and those who are with him. That's what he's saying. Look, these people, those who do not know Jesus Christ by faith, their end is destruction as opposed to immortality in life. They will be destroyed. And they have, he says, mindset on earthly things. Remember, hopefully you can remember back to Philippians chapter 1 and 2. What are we supposed to have? The mindset of who? Jesus Christ. Delayed gratification, deferred glory, sacrifice, service, submission, all the things that he was, that's our mindset. These people's mindset is on pleasing themselves. And that's what he says. Their God is themselves, essentially. And I want to end on this note. I just think it's very worshipful. Related to the resurrection here, if you look at verse 21, it says, He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. All things to himself. Trust that God, Jesus Christ. He will raise you from the dead. Preach to yourself about immortality and life and the bliss of the eternal state rather than focusing on and listening to yourself about your temporary sufferings. That's a hard word, but you will be better for it. I love this quote here. I'm going to read a little bit of a quote. And really, think this way about Jesus and his life for you. There is not one square inch over planet Earth where the risen Jesus does not say, Mine. Though it may not seem to you that he holds such power now, it is but a very short time till he comes and gives us relief and absolutely destroys Satan and sin. He will relieve us of our struggle and sin our failings and our sadness and our doubts. Jesus will subject all things to himself. The nations, including the United States and China and Russia and whoever else, North Korea, they boast and argue, Psalm 2, but God laughs at them and says, kiss the sun, lest in my anger you are destroyed. In the White House, Jesus says, mine. In China's Muslim camps, Jesus says, I own that too. In North Korea's prison camps and in the mansions of Kim Jong-un, Jesus says, mine. I own it. I'll use it for my glory. You cannot escape my power. In all the libraries, in all the schools, in Dallas and the United States that teach horrible, terrible sexual things, Jesus says, I see it and I am not powerless to affect my will there, and I will judge one day. In the darkest hour of the darkest time of your life, Jesus says to you too, mine. I haven't let go. 
in the farthest reaches of the galaxy, the smallest blade of grass in your backyard. Jesus claims it all. And his power is sufficient to do whatever he wills there. He has to say but one word, and it all disappears and changed into the eternal state. And this Jesus says to you, I've taken hold of you, take hold of me. Run to win. Set your affections on him and this hope of resurrected life forever. And you will stand firm in your faith. And so the Philippians would know Christ if they trusted in him and the resurrection he promises instead of themselves. And that's what I think God wanted us to hear from Philippians 3 today. Stand firm, brothers and sisters. Hope in the resurrection. Let me pray for you. Lord, it is but a short time in this life before I will see you and before any of us. So short compared to eternity. Lord, I just pray for each one here that you would protect us from the attacks of Satan in our own sinful ways. Lord, help us not to trust in ourselves but in you. And if there's anyone here, Lord, I just pray that they would, that doesn't know you by faith in Christ or that is struggling to really grab hold of you by faith and trust you, Lord, may, they, may you do a work in their hearts and may they cling to Christ and hope in the resurrection. Just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.